Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 43 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today, we're asking the question, what should separate Christians? How important is the unity of the Spirit? So our Bible passages for today are Genesis 45, and something profoundly important happens in that passage that will determine the next 400 years in the lives of God's people, the descendants of Abraham. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and tells them to go get their father Israel, Jacob, and bring him to Egypt. Unbeknownst to all of them, the family of Israel would stay in Egypt for hundreds of years and go from being a small family to a great nation, a nation of slaves, who will be rescued by God through a murderer with a speech impediment named Moses. Job chapter 11 introduces us to a new uh, friend, I guess you could say, of Job named Zophar. And honestly, he's a bit of an idiot from the start. Now, you might think that's a bit unkind, but Zophar's first words to a man who has just lost his entire family, uh, other than his mean wife, and all his possessions are insults. He calls Job a babbler and a ridiculer of God, and then he follows it up with some false accusations. Zophar accuses Job of declaring himself pure in God's sight, and then urges Job to repent for his sins. But the only problem is that, according to God, Job hadn't sinned and had nothing to repent of. Here's the thing. There's a lot of Zophars in Christendom. They sound very spiritual on the surface, and they say some good things, even some things that's good and right about God. But there's venom on their tongues, and they often accuse the innocent. Friends, let's not be Zophars. There's no need for the gift of Zophar in the body of Christ. Mark 15 is focused on the crucifixion of Jesus, the most unjust occurrence in all of human history. Praise God, it's unjust in our favor, not against us. In Mark 15, we see something interesting about Jesus' followers. Generally, most people focus on the male disciples of Jesus, and the New Testament does as well. But it's also quite clear from the New Testament that Jesus had female followers that were absolutely crucial to his ministry. And we see in Mark 15, verse 40 and 41, there were women watching from a distance, watching the crucifixion. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. These women took care of Jesus. Many women followed him. They ministered to the chief minister. That's pretty amazing, honestly. But those are some great passages. We're not focused on them today. We're actually focused on Romans chapter 15. And we're going to continue our discussion of unity from yesterday. Now, as we read Romans 15, pay really close attention to verses 5 and 6 that say this. Now, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement, grant you to live in harmony with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. So let's read the passage together. Romans 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. 
Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the uncircumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers, and so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing praise to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. My purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God, for I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation, but, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand." That is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you, but now I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Right now I am traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to them in material needs. So when I have finished this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain." I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. 
pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. May the God of peace be with all of you. Amen. So we discussed yesterday this topic of unity and our call as Christians to be unified with each other. Uh, we haven't always done the greatest job of that. I can think of a lot of illustrations of that lack of unity in the church, but one of them stands out recently that I read about, and that was what was called the Cadaver Synod, which was uh, happened in the 800s, there was a pope then. He was Pope Stephen the Sixth, maybe the seventh. There's some kind of disagreement about whether Stephen was the sixth or seventh pope. But in 897, Pope Stephen did a very unusual thing that might sound like it would be home in American politics, except nothing like this has ever been done. Um, he literally dug up the body of a previous pope that he had a beef with. Not the one right before him, but the one before that. That guy's name was Pope Formosus. Pope Stephen the sixth or the seventh had a beef with Pope Formosus. And uh, the only thing about Formosus is he was dead. So what are you going to do about it? Well, Pope Stephen had what maybe to him seemed like a brilliant idea. He would dig up the body of Pope Formosus and dress it up and papal garments. And Pope Formosus hadn't been in the ground for a very long time. So I guess this was still possible to do. So he dug him up, literally put him on trial uh, in his papal garments found him guilty because, you know, there's not a lot of defense a dead person will offer for charges against them, found him guilty, stripped him of his papal garments, cut off his three fingers that he used for making the sign of the cross, and then buried him in a commoner's grave, whereas he had been buried in a really nice uh, papal grave before that. But... After a few days, they thought, you know what? Burying old Pope Formosus in a commoner's grave is too good for that old jerk. Let's dig him up. So they dug him up again. They put some weights on him and threw him into a river. Ah, that is not what Jesus had in mind when he called us to unity, I don't think. And yes, of course, that's an extreme example. I'm not making fun of the Roman Catholic Church in that. I'm making fun of Christians throughout the century who have absolutely ignored the call of Jesus to be in unity. And maybe some of us haven't quite gone that far, uh, but we have nevertheless ignored the call. Now, by God's grace and nothing else, I have been able to serve in various pastoral ministry positions for the last 25 years. At some point in those early days of ministry, I encountered Jesus's prayer in John 17 that we discussed on yesterday's episode of the podcast, number 42. His plea to God the Father the, that his followers be in complete unity struck me to the depths of my being. For whatever reason, and I think it was a work of the Spirit, it resonated with me as something very, very crucial. The first 
two churches that I served in, and this was all the way back in the 90s, centuries ago, millennia ago, they had conflict issues, not severe, but noticeable conflict issues among the senior staff and overall leaders of the church. Now, I myself was part of the junior staff at both of those churches, and I didn't have much to say in the direction of the church, and I kind of missed out on most of those direct conflicts, but I sort of caught some little hints along the way. One day in the 90s, well over 20 years ago, I happened to stumble upon a note written from one pastor to another pastor that was about me. And it somehow suggested that I had chosen sides in an ongoing church conflict. Now, I was genuinely shocked to find the letter as I didn't really understand the nature of the conflict. I wasn't aware there were sides to it, and I certainly wasn't aware that I had chosen a side. In fact, I really, really admired guys on both sides. As it turned out, there were a couple of sides, and I really liked the guys on both sides. Well, that shook me, honestly. And heartbroken, I resigned from that ministry to focus on finishing up my college degree. Now, I was nothing more than a junior high youth pastor. I was part-time, so really no big deal. I was just a kid. Uh, There were no hard feelings at all. I remained with that church for years after that, and I respected all of the men in leadership. I just didn't understand the conflict. I still don't understand what exactly it was about, and, and that's fine. Don't have to. Now, the next church I served in, I was a little older. Uh, this was the first full-time church job I had. Uh, there was also some conflict among the leaders of the church, conflict which eventually led to the senior pastor converting to Roman Catholicism, you don't see that every day, and a meeting or maybe a series of meetings that sort of spread, threatened to split the church. I'm pretty sure in my young immaturity and zeal and pride and sinfulness that I contributed to that conflict in multiple ungodly ways. Realizing that, and actually part of the realization of that was uh, the reading of a book that really convicted me of, of my behavior called A Tale of Three Kings by a guy named Gene Edwards. And I, I'm reading that book and, and considering what all had happened, I was really convicted of of my part in some of these issues, which I think might have been small, but who knows? It's hard to see your own sin sometimes, isn't it? So I quietly resigned from that church after three years of ministry with an incredible group of kids and parents. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, and don't get me wrong, it wasn't conflict every minute or even every week or really even every month. It just was more than I expected in the church of Jesus. And somewhere in the midst of all that, I began to be strongly impressed by the Bible's teaching on unity. And I resolved to the best of my ability to work towards unity in the church. Because if Jesus prayed for it to happen, it must be really, really, really important. And he prayed for it to happen multiple times, which kind of says it's like really super important. The problem is, and you've probably experienced this too, unity does not come easily. You've got your opinions. I've got mine. Other people have theirs. 
We are all sinners with an inborn flaw. It causes us to walk in pride and not realize that we are walking in pride. Unity has to be fought for. And the fighting is usually against yourself because I'm one of the chief enemies of unity. So my sinful nature, my pride, and my desire to be right has to be crucified. It is not an accident that Paul calls us to make, quote, every effort to be at peace with each other. Ephesians 4, 2 through 4 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Man, that's tough. Look, like I said, I've been in church leadership for 25 years. That's not a long time compared to some, but it's a little while. And one of the things about being in church leadership is you have all these decisions to make. And some of them are very clearly guided by biblical counsel. Honestly, those are the easy ones. The question is, are you going to compromise what the Bible says or not? And and always the, the leadership teams I've been on as pastor, senior pastor, teaching pastor or whatever, we haven't had a big problem with those decisions, praise God, because the word of God told us to. But what about the other decisions? What about the decisions that the Bible doesn't tell you what to do? Should you uh, refinish this building that is falling into disrepair? Should you uh, increase the budget or decrease the budget? All these kind of questions, and we've all got opinions on them. Unity is an important and central issue in the church. It's not one we can miss on. The thing is, the eyes of non-believers, baby believers, children, and the next generation of pastors and leaders are on those who are now leading the church. They are listening to our dinner table conversations. They are overhearing our complaints. They're reading our social media posts, and they see the expressions on our face. If they see us walking in disunity, pride, and demanding our own way, then they will grow up and do the same thing, maybe even worse. Eyes are on us, leaders of the church, and thus does the Bible say to us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let me read you a little selection from my old friend Charles Spurgeon from a sermon he preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle way back in the day. He says, As a church, let us shake off envyings. Let us all rejoice in God's light. And as for pride, if any of you have grown vainglorious of late, shake it off. I hope to exercise a ministry in this place, which will drive out those of you who will not acknowledge your brothers when they are poorer or of less education than yourselves. What if the man mars the queen's English when he talks? What does that matter, says Spurgeon, as long as his heart is right? As long as you can feel he loves the master, surely you can put up with his faults of language if he can put up with your faults of action. Let us cultivate everything that would tend to unity. Are any sick? Let's care for them. Are any suffering? Let's weep with them. Do we know somebody who has less love than others? Then let us have more love so as to make up for the deficiency. Do we perceive faults in a brother? Let us admonish him in love and affection. I pray you be peacemakers 
everyone. Let us remember that we cannot keep the unity of the Spirit unless we all believe the truth of God. Let us search our Bibles, therefore, and conform our views and sentiments to the teaching of God's Word. I have already told you that unity in error is unity in ruin. We want unity in the truth of God through the Spirit of God. This let us seek after. Let us live near to Christ, for this is the best way of promoting unity, to live near Christ. Divisions in churches never begin with those full of love to the Savior. Cold hearts, unholy lives, inconsistent actions, neglected prayer closets, these are the seeds, says Spurgeon, which sow schisms or separations in the body. But he who lives near to Jesus wears his likeness and copies his example and will be Wherever he goes, a sacred bond, a holy link to bind the church more closely than ever together. May God give us this, and henceforth let us endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I commend that text to all believers to be practiced through the coming year. Amen and amen. Jesus commands unity in his church, and he prays for it. The very idea that, I don't know, let's say continuationists like uh, John Piper, Sam Storms, Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer, and D.A. Carson should not be in the same church with more cessationist believers like David Platt, Thomas Schreiner, Charles Spurgeon, Tim Keller. That idea hurts my heart, and it goes against the prayer of Jesus for unity in John 17. You say, wait a minute, spiritual gifts are important. Sure they are. Are they worth separating over? Are they that important? Do you picture, think about this, do you picture us arriving at the gates of heaven and Jesus or one of his angels addressing you with something like, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You only stuck closely and had biblical oneness and the unity I commanded with those who adhered to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, and you refused to worship together with or partner in the Great Commission with anyone else. Good job. Because... I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we're going to be commended for having a tight, narrow range of people we decide we will be in unity with. When Paul commanded Christians to be of one mind and one voice, and Jesus prayed for unity among his followers, I don't really believe we have the freedom to separate from each other over non-essential doctrinal issues like spiritual gifts, our interpretation of the last days, what kind of worship we should conduct, the clothes we should wear, or the exact nature of how God's sovereignty works in determining salvation. We may not all go to the same church, but we must all clearly and obviously demonstrate the unity of the Spirit made possible by the bond of peace that binds us together in Christ Jesus. Genesis chapter 45 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all of his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Pause and consider how unifying Joseph's behavior is here. His brothers did something terrible to him, but he brings unity to the whole nation of God's people by forgiving them before they even ask. That's the kind of unity Jesus is looking for in his church. I'll put my soapbox back now. Verse 9, return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and all you have. There I will sustain you, for there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you, your household, and everything you have will become destitute. Look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see that I'm the one speaking to you. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and all you have seen, and bring my father here quickly. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace, Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and go on back to the land of Canaan. Get your father and your families and come back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can eat from the richness of the land. You are also commanded to tell them, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your dependents and your wives and bring your father here. Do not be concerned about your belongings for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them wagons as Pharaoh had commanded and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave each of the brothers changes of clothes and he gave Benjamin 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes. He sent his father the following. Ten donkeys carrying the best products of Egypt and ten female donkeys carrying grain, food, and provisions for his father on the journey. So Joseph sent his brothers on the way, and as he were, as they were leaving, he said to them, Don't argue on the way. So they went up from Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They said, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned, for he did not believe them. But when they told Jacob all that Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to transport him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, Enough! My son Joseph is still alive. I will go to see him before I die. Job chapter 11 verse 1 Then Zophar the Naamathite replied, should this abundance of words go unanswered and such a talker be acquitted? Should your babbling put others to silence so that you can keep on ridiculing with no one to humiliate you? 
You have said my teaching is sound, and I am pure in your sight, but if only God would speak and open his lips against you, he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know then that God has chosen to overlook some of your iniquity. Can you fathom the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. If he passes by and throws someone in prison or convenes a court, who can stop him? Surely he knows which people are worthless. If he sees iniquity, will he not take note of it? But a stupid person will gain understanding as soon as a wild donkey is born to a human. As for you, if you redirect your heart and spread out your hands to him in prayer, if there is iniquity in your hand, remove it, and don't allow injustice to dwell in your tents. Then you will hold your head high, free from fault. You will be firmly established and unafraid, for you will forget your suffering, recalling it only as water that has flowed by. Your life will be brighter than noonday, its darkness will be like the morning. You will be confident because there is hope. You will look carefully about and lie down in safety. You will lie down with no one to frighten you, and many will seek your favor. But the sight of the wicked will fail. Their way of escape will be cut off, and their only hope is their last breath. Just got to be honest with you. Zophar really aggravates me. Keeping in mind, he was rebuked by God for his foolishness at the end of Job. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priest tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels and had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews to you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting on down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. 
forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus's cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was, The King of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself by coming down from the cross! In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. But he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see him and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he brought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were watching where he was laid. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for what you suffered in our place. Blessed be your name. Good day to you, friends, and Godspeed.